So he's asked me to speak about uh, the great challenge or challenges in our Australian culture to Christian leaders. And I want to uh, respond to that question in the context of worldviews. And I'll particularly be speaking about the lies that our culture embeds in people's worldviews and how to recognise them and, uh, and what to do about that, how to be agents for, for worldview change. If you were to do a survey of Australians today, and ask them what are the great challenges of this particular time, you will find that people are troubled about the future. They're concerned about what lies ahead. And they're particularly troubled about economic outcomes and environmental issues. That'll be at the top of their list. We've just moved to a house in New South Wales and the fires that came down on New Year's Eve stopped. They traveled 30 kilometers in a night and they stopped 100 meters from our home. So the wind changed at the last minute. So issues of the environment are on, on people's hearts and minds a lot at the moment. We've had a really hard, harrowing summer with fires and storms and floods. And now this Wuhan uh, coronavirus crisis. I, I was just reading that a, a woman in South Korea has apparently infected 40 people at her church um, because she attended uh, three church services and didn't think that the the sore throat that she had uh, could possibly be coronavirus because she hadn't been to China. So that raises lots of questions, doesn't it? How do we do, how do we do even church together? But what's the greatest challenge facing Christians and particularly Christian leaders? I think it's not the environment or the economy as important as those things are. The greatest challenge is not a sudden or a recent thing. It's not a thing that's happened this summer or yesterday. It's a long-term, slowly developing crisis concerning the flight from truth in our culture, in our media, in our educational institutions, and indeed everywhere. Uh, we've been white-anted by uh, an assault on truth on many fronts. And I'm concerned that many Christian leaders are not really attuned to this. They're not equipped to stand firm in the face of that crisis. And even they're not equipped to identify and understand the key characteristics of what is happening, or to prepare their people, their, their, their supporters or the people they're working with, to stand in the face of what's happening. Truth is a great challenge of our time, and I'm not speaking about Donald Trump. <laughs> um, it's interesting, isn't it, that even the coronavirus challenge, which is a huge economic issue now, uh, the head of Qantas says that um, uh, uh, a number of airlines will go to the wall uh, at the moment um, because of the, the, the effect on travel alone. Early in the development of the epidemic, uh, a Christian Chinese doctor, Li Wenliang, uh, was warning other doctors on social media, on a network they had, about this new SARS-like virus and where it was coming from. And he was arrested by the authorities as a rumour monger rebuked by the police, accused of disturbing the public order, and he was forced to apologise. And he, he did make a confession, apologised. So the authorities were going for denial, and they tried to suppress reports of the crisis. Now, this Christian doctor, this whistleblower, later died from the disease. But before he passed, he said that there needs to be space for people to express different views in a healthy society. He sensed the threat caused by a society in which truth is abused and suppressed. It was this suppression of truth that made the virus outbreak far worse 
and more threatening than it might otherwise have been. It's been called a super spreader um, because it, it can spread so rapidly as they found in that church in South Korea. Uh, the social media in China has been alight with uh, comments that the authorities are busily trying to delete. And one comment was, the truth will always be treated as a rumour, that is, by the authorities. How long are you going to lie? Are you still lying? What else do you have to hide? People have become very sensitive to this issue of truth in China today. In the 17th century, William Gurnall, an English minister, published the book, The Christian in Complete Armour. It's a series of lectures, a famous uh, tract on uh, Ephesians 6. And uh, it's, it's become a Christian classic. And it's a good question for all of us. Are we in complete armour? Is our armour in good shape? And one of the weapons of Ephesians 6 is the sword of truth, which is part of the complete armour of the Christian. It needs to be sharp. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Some of Satan's lies that the sword of truth is needed for uh, keep getting recycled from generation to generation. They're as old as the hills. But each culture, each, each moment in time also brings particular lies, particular to the age in which we live. And that's, like, that's what I'd like to speak about with you today. My aim uh, for this session, and it's a session that's going to spread over two sessions, so I, I'm not like one topic and then another topic. I've got a presentation that I'll extend now and then after lunch. Um, what I want to bring to you today is not only uh, to uh, apply biblical truth to the false ideas that inhabit our culture, that indwell our culture, but also to equip us to stand against these lies, to recognise them, to make decisions and take actions that are informed by truth and how to uh, challenge those lies, how to replace them with truth. But to get to the truth, you need to know what the lies are. You need to examine these lies and look at them through the lens of a Christian worldview. Uh, when I was in Aceh many years ago, I was doing a PhD in linguistics and uh, that required me to write a grammar of the language of Aceh in Indonesia. Aceh is a is a region in the very northern part of Sumatra, and it's considered the most Islamic uh, community in Indonesia. They even have local concessions now for Sharia law, which they didn't have when I was there. You know, people are publicly flogged for, I don't know, a man and a woman being together on a motorbike and they're not married or things like that. Um, but when I was there, it wasn't as bad. But um, I, I lived amongst the Achenese people and uh, drank a lot of uh, coffee and local coffee and ate a lot of rice and fish and sometimes I visited some remote villages and uh, I remember one time I visited a village and there was a, a woman that we were visiting, a relative of my friend and she saw me and, and she had some questions. She really needed to ask me a few questions and one of her questions was this. She said, you understand about earthquakes? I said, yes, earthquakes. And she said, is it true that earthquakes are caused by two cows under the earth fighting that cause the earth to shake? I thought, oh, that's really fascinating. What a worldview. <laughs> and um, how can I explain this? And I thought back to my geology in school and plate tectonics. And I said, it's like rice. You know, when you cook rice and you have heat coming up, it makes it bubble and it moves, you know, in the pot. 
And the earth is like that. It's hot under the earth and the heat is moving around. And every now and again, the, the crust on the top, it shakes and it moves. So I don't think, I don't think there are big cows under the earth. She was quite happy with the explanation. Another worldview issue that came up to me was a little bit harder because it touched on a religious belief. Uh, people had heard about and even seen the astronauts going to the moon, the Apollo missions. And uh, one day, the, the, the little old lady that I was living with, who'd been to Mecca and was a devout Muslim, she said to me, you know, you, you, you heard about those Americans who went to the moon? I said, yes. She said, how could that be? How could that happen? I said, well, what was difficult about it? And she said, well, there are seven gates to the heavens. And each of those gates is guarded by a Muslim angel. And there's no way that a Muslim angel would have let infidel Americans through those gates to get to the moon. I thought, oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> I said, I don't think there are any gates between the earth and the moon. <laughs> But she had also a physical worldview that was projected by her religion, the belief in these gates. It's in the Quran, actually, the belief in these angels, the guardians of the, of the portals of the heavens. A worldview is a set of assumptions and values which constrain and direct the way we interpret and interact with the world around us. They give us a framework for generating knowledge and sustaining it and also living it out, applying it. And this is a point I want to really make that's very important, is that worldviews shape and direct our perception. They tell us what we can see and what we can't see. They direct our attention to certain things and not to others. And often we're not aware of them, so they control the way we see things without us really understanding that they're doing that. Um, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein once said that we think we're tracing the shape of reality but we're just tracing the shape of the frame through which we're looking over and over again, not of reality at all. And the question is, how can you see the frame? Worldviews filter and organize information for us. They make us think we're seeing the whole picture while filtering out, especially things that don't fit our worldview. We can't see them. Actually, we need some kind of filter because there's so much glut of information in our age today we're faced by a kind of shower of facts, a meteoric shower of facts, you know, lots of facts bombarding us all the time. How do we make sense of it? And our worldview helps us make sense of things. It's very handy. Um, Edna St. Vincent Millay wrote a little poem about this. Upon this gifted age, in its dark hour, rains from the sky a meteoric shower of facts. They lie unquestioned, uncombined, wisdom enough to leech us of our ill is daily spun, but there exists no loom to weave it into fabric. So what you're saying is there's just so many facts coming to us all the time. How can we make sense of it? How can we put it into a big picture? We're flooded with information and we need a filter, but we need a truth-based filter, not a filter with holes in it or a filter that forces out things that we should really be paying attending to. Now, worldviews are embedded in our language and our culture, and they're passed on through our language and our culture. Language is the alphabet of our thought. Uh, it's the conduit of our ideas. It's, it provides a, a language for our soul as well. And worldviews, they're habit-based systems, so they're based on habitual ways people act and think. They have what you could call cultural momentum. They don't go away easily. They're embedded in the way a whole society thinks and they're reinforced 
by the way we speak to each other and the way we talk. Let me give you an example. In our Western kind of English language worldview about time, we think of time as a line um, and we're moving forward and behind us is something that's backward. You understand? We think of time as progress. It's, it's deeply embedded in our language. The future and the past moving forward in time. We think of time as a movement. That's not the case in all languages. So in, in Bali, time is a cycle. And you know, every three days there's a festival, every five days there's a festival, every six days there's a festival, and every now and again all the days all come together and have a very big festival. And that's actually how the Balinese gamelan music works. There's one instrument that bangs every three times, another bangs every 12 times, another every six times, and every now and again you get out every 60 or 120 revolutions, it all comes together, and then the music just keeps on bubbling on like that. So Javanese and, and Balinese music, it doesn't have that progression of, of uh, you know, resolution and climax and the kind of view of time as a narrative that's so much part of Western music. So the music itself, reflects the view of time that's part of the culture. So it's embedded in the culture, the way people see time. So in a European view of time, time is linear, and we think of it often in a kind of moral terms as well, ethical terms. We think of ourselves as moving forwards and not backwards. Backwards is bad, the past is bad. Future is good, that's positive. Um, the future is getting better, or oh, that's our framework of, of time that we have in our language. This is what our language gives to us. It's the way we speak. It's very hard to escape from your language. Your language is like your jailer. It, it determines what you can do and where you can, what you can say and how you can think. And, you know, changing your worldview means often changing your language. It means thinking through how you speak. Now, worldviews are not supposed to be straitjackets. They're not supposed to imprison you. They're supposed to free you up, to function, to talk, to see. Um, they're, they're, they're meant to enable you to have a, a way of doing things. Uh, and one of the ways they do that is they make certain parts of action and certain beliefs seem more plausible than others, and not necessarily because of logic or evidence. And in fact, sometimes worldviews are very deceptive because they give you a certain belief, but they filter out information that doesn't agree with it, and you end up believing it because you can't see anything else. You're, you're, you, you have a self-perpetuating lie. It's like someone who believes um, that everything will always go wrong for them. And sure enough, it does. <laughs> because they lack confidence to actually succeed in anything. They give up as soon as they're difficulty. So their, their, their personal emotional worldview is self-fulfilling prophecy. And a lot of worldviews are like that. You've had some great examples that Bill's shared with you about how worldviews influence people. And just some areas, some examples, I'll just run through again. Um, do you see uh, human choice in terms of free will or determinism? It's an interesting question. Cultures vary about that. Um, I was asked from time to time when I was living in Aceh about this very question, often in connection with medical issues. Um, there was a, a, a European leader who was being kept alive on a life support system and my Achenese friend said, what are they trying to do? God determines the time of someone's death. It's impossible to keep someone alive. 
And I thought, gee, that would have a big impact on your medical system if you really believe that. <laughs> Why bother with intensive care? But God will take them when he's ready. That's it, you know. Um, so or, or do people have choice? You know, how, how, do, we, how do we function? Uh, is, it, is it just all determined? Another issue is where does law come from? You know, is law something that comes from God or is it something we determined for ourselves? Um, a worldview that uh, you, perhaps it could be called transcendentalism or cosmic humanism uh, it has the idea that you are a law to yourself. You know, you, the Wiccan ethic, the witchcraft ethic is do what you will and harm none. You know, you are the, your own law. I think the Satanist ethic is just do what you will. <laughs> Forget about not harming anyone. Are you going to follow the Ten Commandments or are you going to say do what you will and harm none? How you, you know, where's your legal worldview? What does your law, law come from? Where does it come from? Um, another question is where does power come from? I, I find that really interesting in churches uh, and different churches have different uh, worldviews about authority. So in the Anglican church, authority comes from the bishop. You, you can't preach a sermon or, or you know, do any ministry without the bishop's license in the Anglican. He's actually the pastor of all of Melbourne. It's quite a big job, I feel, for him. Um, and I was licensed by him. But in a more Baptist view, authority comes from the, the congregation. And they could sack you on Monday if you preached the wrong sermon on Sunday. And that does happen to people, and there's lots of damaged Baptist pastors around. Um, Anglicans have other problems, but I know that my congregation can't ever sack me because the Archbishop has appointed me and I've been licensed by him. Um, so there's a different view of authority and I've seen someone move from one denomination into another and they get really confused by what's happening in the congregation because they don't understand the different understanding of where authority comes from. Or in politics, does authority come from the people or from the tribe you belong to? You know, How, Where is that coming from? Now, I want to mention the idea of a touchstone. This is um, a touchstone in, in alchemy or whatever. Uh, it, was the, it was a stone which would reveal the qualities of something else. Actually, you could use it to scratch something to see how hard something was. It's the, it's the stone that reveals the truth. And um, we often have a touchstone. We have a kind of worldview touchstone that we apply to something that we find hard to understand we're not sure about. There was once a man who was convinced that he was dead and he was in, a, in an institution, which is understandable, uh, but he was completely convinced that he was dead. And he would tell people, I'm dead, you know, I'm a dead man walking. And um, one day someone tried to persuade him about his belief that it was mistaken and he thought, I'll use logic. So he said to the man, do you agree with me that um, dead men don't bleed? And he said, yeah, that's true, dead men don't bleed. So the other guy took a pin and stuck it in the guy's finger and he started bleeding. And this dead man, he said, dead men do bleed. <laughs> he had a touchstone, he was dead and anything that didn't fit that just had to be refashioned and reorganized, you know. That was the non-negotiable in his, in his worldview. And often we have those non-negotiables that we you just can't abandon because we're so attached to them. Of course, we've been under an assault about truth. I mean, the postmodern take on truth is that there is no truth, that 
Meaning is something the reader creates. It's, it's something you invent for yourself. Everyone's truth is their, is their own. Is true for you? They'll say, that's true for you. I've known sometimes people would say, oh, I found Christ. You know, I, I believe in God. Oh, that's great. That's true for you, you know. I once had a conversation with one of our Jewish friends in Caulfield. Caulfield's the most Jewish area in the Southern Hemisphere and I've had a lot to do with Jews and spoken at synagogues often and uh, different groups. And um, I was speaking to one guy who was, uh, he was very concerned about Messianic Jews, people who uh, say they're Jews and follow Jesus. He said, this can't be true. I said, why is that? He said, oh, the Messiah has certain characteristics and Jesus doesn't have them. I said, but I believe he's the Messiah. And my Jewish friend, oh, that's okay for you. That's a, he's a Gentile Messiah for you. You can believe that. But you can't be a Jew and believe he's the Messiah. <laughs> it's like, true for you, Messiah for you, but not for me, not for us, please. Um, it's a very flexible view of meaning. And that's had a big impact on how people think today, even though it's not very logical. It's important to understand that worldviews are not monolithic systems. They're not even always very well organised. They can be made up of a whole set of beliefs that partner together, but don't always necessarily fit perfectly. Yeah. Um, and they can be broken down. You know, you can change a worldview by dealing with the bits and pieces until the system kind of falls apart. I think also it's important to realise that we as people have different types of worldviews and they kind of work together in complex ways. So. We can have an emotional worldview that's shaped by our family, by our individual experiences, the culture that we live in. Um, and people have, I'll speak more about this in a moment in the context of what does it mean to pastor people? Because their emotional worldview is very powerful and influential. Some people might have a view that everyone's out to get me, for example, that's an emotional worldview. Or someone might say, I feel I'm better than other people, you know, I'm superior. And that's also a, an emotional worldview. There's a spiritual worldview. What are the spiritual entities in the world? You know, are demons real? Are spiritual powers real? Uh, how do we engage with the spiritual world? Does it matter if I follow astrology and I'm a Christian? What implications does that have? Um, there's a religious worldview, that is, what is religion? How does religion work? Sheila Jeffries is a really interesting uh, person. She was a professor of politics at Melbourne University and a, a radical feminist. Um, and she defined religion in a book that she wrote called Man's Dominion as the result of power relations in a culture. So she said, this book starts from the understanding that religion is socially constructed and produced by culture. Revelations come from nowhere more mysterious than the interests of the dominant groups within cultures at particular times. So in her view, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they're production basically of men to serve patriarchal purposes. They're constructed to, to, to maintain and control power in the hands of men. And that's the way, that's how she sees the whole faith as a, as a structure. And it's quite interesting when you think about that, because in her view, those three religions have basically the same attitude to women, because they all come out of the same purpose, which is patriarchy. So she can't see differences between faiths at all. And she just blurs them all together, because her worldview demands that. There's an ethical worldview to how do you relate to people. Uh, I'll give you some examples of this a bit later. 
Now, we live in a, of course, in a time where there are competing worldviews, there are different worldviews, more than in the past, I think. There have always been competition for worldviews, but there are many different options available to us, just as there's many different kinds of music and lots and lots of different cereals in the shop that we can buy, <laughs> different kinds of milk, there's different kinds of worldviews. Um, there's some things, however, that are pretty common across our culture, and they are really important to identify and engage with and to challenge, but there are also other particular choices that people can make within that. Um, and uh, I'm really always fascinated to see these competitions at work. I, I remember a time I was uh, doing clinical pastoral education training in a hospital. Clinical pastoral education is a training uh, where a pastor or a trainee pastor works, for example, in a hospital for a few months. And every time you, you do pastoral care, you visit someone. I was in the Mercy Hospital for Women. You make detailed notes and you, you bring it back and work with your supervisor. And the purpose is for you to really workshop yourself, to ask what's happening in me as I'm facing these people in crisis. But what was really interesting is that at the start of the program at the Mercy Hospital, they gave us a, a presentation in which the middle managers were sharing their vision of what a healthy hospital would look like. This is the Mercy Hospital. And the middle manager says, it's very important that we think of all the people who come to the hospital for medical care as clients. And if we think them as clients, then, then it will be better for us because our business will go better by thinking of them as paying clients and it'll be better for them as well, because they'll be empowered by being thought of as clients. And I'm sitting this, I'm just, this is absolute madness. This is the Mercy Hospital, you know. Their values are based on the principle of mercy and of love and of service. And you could see it in the hospital, the doctors and the nurse, they're just amazing. It's a beautiful hospital for women. And yet they've employed these middle managers who are just white-anting the culture of the hospital by taking a worldview they've taken from business and they're fitting it into a, to this hospital that's based on love. And it was, I was just, I was outraged. <laughs> but I was just a little pastoral care student, so I didn't say anything. But I thought, they're in deep trouble, you know. And that's a problem in hospitals in general. They put a, you know, they want, the government want hospitals to, to do the right thing, so they put monetary values on certain types of behaviours and they penalise hospitals for this outcome or that outcome. It's like trying to make grace an economically costable, uh, you know, process. And th there's lots of casualties that come out of that. So that's a worldview of care, you know, what is, what is, there, is this a business or is this a Christian ministry? They were right in conflict with each other. It was, a, it was fascinating to watch. There are lots of alternatives in, our, um, in, our, in Western societies for worldviews today, and people speak about them at times. It's helpful to study them separately. Uh, one is the sort of Marxist worldview, the communist worldview. It's a, uh, a part of the atheist family of views. Um, Secular humanism, or perhaps naturalism, you could call that, is, is another option. Um, cosmic humanism or transcendentalism, the new age, is another view that's very uh, widespread and growing in influence in our culture. Um, there's the influence of postmodernism and all that goes with that. And there's a Christian worldview as well. And there's the Islamic worldview, which I've spent many years studying to try and understand and uh, get my head around and to make clear and comprehensible for people. So we have these different views, and we're, people have a concern in our society that we're fragmenting, that there, there isn't the consensus that there once was, and that's partly because as the Christian worldview has receded in its influence, all these other worldviews are popping up, and, 
our general multicultural assumption is that on a, you know, all things are equal, all cultures are equal, worldviews are equal, so it doesn't really matter what worldview people have, uh, pe worldviews people have. They just create them, and um, I'll talk more about that in a moment, but you need to be uh, you know, conversant with that. So in this world of multiple worldviews, leaders need analytical skills. You need to be able to know these worldviews and to recognise some of the characteristics. So if someone interacts with you, you know where they're coming from. You know, some of those questions that you saw that come from high school students, they, they arise out of certain thoughts about culture and about life. And you need to be able to know what's underneath those questions. You know how to break things down. Um, you, issues like what is the fundamental human problem is such an important question. And the way people think about that will shape lots of things. What does a good life look like? What does it mean to live well? That's an important question. And how are the lies woven into these different worldviews? How do they support each other? A leader needs worldview literacy. You need to be able to think within other worldviews, to actually put your head into that space and understand what logically follows from those assumptions. So you need to be able to think in multiple ways. To do that, you need to know your own worldview so that you can set it aside for the purpose of understanding. Otherwise, you're just looking at other people's views through your glasses, through your frame, which, which won't work. You also need to be able to identify the contradictions and ambiguities in other worldviews, their weak spots, the things that don't actually work, that aren't actually true. Um, the communist view is that by changing structure, social structures, political structures, people would be perfectible in some way. It denies the reality of sin, of human, the fallenness of human nature, and that's a great weakness. And the result has been again and again that, that communist societies, without putting the checks and balances in that are needed to deal with human sin, become terribly evil, and they've killed uh, tens and tens of millions, more than 100 million casualties of that denial of, the human, of, the human, of human nature. You need to be able to also anticipate the problems and the potential for conflict within a worldview, the things that are going to break that worldview down. You also need, um, as a leader, if you're building a church, for example, or a community, you need to build a common worldview. You need their worldviews to converge in order to have a healthy church, for example. If your members don't share a worldview, that will be quite hard to lead them because they'll be going in, in different directions. Organisations thrive when they have worldview stability. And businesses know this, so they, within their own domain, they get people to agree on certain things. For example, the customer comes first, or things like that. They're important for people to work together in harmony. So a leader needs to be a worldview manager, a transformational agent to care for and assist worldview change in the organisation. And it's a long, slow process. It's like gardening. You know, you plant a garden, you've got all these plants, they're all doing their own thing, but you want them to do it together. And to do that, you need to take the weeds out, you need to do a bit of pruning, you need to keep the lawn down. And, you know, caring for the worldview of your congregation needs a lot of attention and, and management and, and, and support. Um, some key tools for, for implementing and managing worldview change, you need to know the weaknesses in worldviews in order to challenge people to change. You need to be able to recognise cognitive dissonance when there's a breakdown and to be able to use that at the right moment. 
You need to be able to challenge those touchstones, those non-negotiables. You need to give alternatives to them as well. People won't abandon failing worldviews if they've got nothing else to get into. If you're in a boat and it's sinking and you know it's sinking, you're not going to jump into the ocean. You, you have to have an alternative to go to. So part of helping people have healthy worldviews is providing a, a safe and healthy alternative to them. You need to use rituals and structures like branding and so on to reinforce worldviews and the, the, the core bits of the worldview. This is so important in discipling people. When someone comes to Christ, they're open for worldview change. They've really almost written like a blank check. Lord, uh, you're my Lord of my life. But lots of things need to change. So you have this window of opportunity for a year or two to help people revise their worldviews. And if you don't do that well, and they continue to live as a Christian, but with a pre-Christian worldview, the whole project will come apart at some point. We've had to work really hard with people from a Muslim background to rebuild their emotional worldview, their relational worldview, uh, on many fronts and very aggressively and systematically. And if you don't do that, Muslim background believers' churches have huge problems that everyone working amongst that particular group of people has come to recognise. I'd like to reflect with you for a few moments about the use of truth as a resource. I've been working for, as a pastor for more than 20 years. Actually, this is our, my first speaking engagement since I've stopped doing that. <laughs> um, and some thoughts about pastoring as a, as a worldview process. What is a pastor's role? Well, I think you're a medic to the soul. It's to help souls find health and to stay healthy. When, um, when people are broken and they're damaged, there's a healing or restoring process that's needed, and also a preventative process, building resilience and strength so they can overcome crises. Um, I've been very sad over the years to meet people who fell out of faith in God because some crisis happened that they hadn't been prepared for, like someone dying unexpectedly. And that didn't fit the, the, the deal they'd made with God, and they had never been taught about how to, how to deal with crisis and how to deal with loss and and suffering in the Christian life. There are at least two main maladies of the soul that I've found are really challenging to help people through. And one is, um, one is the impact of trauma of different kinds. You know, why did God let this happen to me? The shock to my soul. Why did my mother suffer so much before she died? Uh, why did my son, why was my son born? with cerebral palsy or, or something else. And also experiences of violence or rejection, abuse, uh, perhaps from someone that loved or should have loved you. So there's trauma. And another real challenge is the lie, the lies that embed themselves in our, in our emotional worldview, in our spiritual worldview. Uh, we call these, in pre-ministry, we call these ungodly beliefs. Um, these are ideas which have been internalized to the point where they feel normal and they feel true to the person. Uh, have you ever prayed with someone and they say, look, I know that's not true, but it feels true. Yeah. That lie that's been afflicting me, that I'm useless, for example. Um, after many years of ministry, I've come to see that everyone can be and is affected by these lies, sometimes small, sometimes big, and sometimes they're just whoppers, they're really huge. Um, in my journey as a Christian and as a human being, identifying and overcoming the lies that have plagued me have been really important and part of my, my pursuit for freedom. And I'm really passionate for freedom. I just love people to be free. And it grieves me when I see that they're carrying these lies around. 
Some examples, there's just so many of them that you can think of. I've met so many lies over the year, I've never met a lie that I liked, I must admit. <laughs> uh, for example, I'm fundamentally flawed. If people found out what I'm really like, they would hate me. People never listen to me. You can't trust men. If I don't look after myself, nobody else will. Something will always go wrong when I try and do something. If I stick my neck out, my head will be cut off. I'm special and different from other people, so normal rules don't apply to me. All men are liars. You can't trust women. If you tell the truth, no one will believe you. If I speak in public, I'll embarrass myself, so it's better not to speak. It's my job to take the blame if something goes wrong. I must never let anybody down. And on and on the list would go. So many of these thoughts that become part of people's psyche. We call these ungodly beliefs because although they masquerade as truths and they usually feel true to the person, but at the base they reject God's truth about his purpose and design for this Christian believer. And to really believe God and to believe the word of God means applying his truth about yourself to your soul, to your own life, and to live accordingly. If you entertain the devil's lies, and by entertain I mean sort of inviting him in and letting him sit down and have a cup of tea with you, uh, if you invite the devil's lies, if you entertain them, you call God a liar and you cut yourself off from the truth. And that makes you vulnerable and it weakens you on the day of battle means the sword of truth is not ready in your hand. So bad ideas, ungodly beliefs, can become embedded in your whole worldview, in your way of looking in the world and of doing life that you can build up on your life's journey. Some of the lies are self-invented. You make them up yourself in order to deal with the things that happen to you. For example, you're abused. So as a way of processing that fact and Living with the person who's hurt you, you come to the belief that it was my fault. It's a useful lie because it gives you some hope that you might be able to address the problem by fixing yourself and it enables you to still love the person who's abusing you because after all, it's your fault that they're doing that to you. Um, but of course, this is a false belief. It has a false hope and the lie just binds you tighter into the abuse and it binds you to the, to the abuser. And it just adds self-hatred to the pain that you've already experienced. Other lies are imposed on others, like the father who tells, tells his daughter, you'll never amount to anything, you're going to be a failure all your life. I've met people who've, who've had to struggle with that. It's like a script going on in their heads all their life. And sometimes people intentionally put these thoughts into other people in order to control them. Abusers do that, groomers do that. And sometimes it's just a thoughtless thing, like a parent who calls their child an idiot and doesn't really think about what they're saying and the prophecy that they're uttering over their child. Well, wherever the lie comes from, the process of restoring the soul involves identifying that ungodly belief. It involves naming it and exposing it, and that can be a painful and challenging process. It means renouncing that, that ungodly belief and replacing it with truth, declaring truth. And if someone believes that they're bad to the bone, they may struggle to accept God's forgiveness, even though rationally they understand it. To truly receive the love and forgiveness of the Father, to be, really know that they love, 
They need to reject the lie. They need to say, I'm going to put that to death. I'm going to see that as my dire enemy. Well, I've been speaking about personal ungodly beliefs and pastoring the soul as an individual, as a person before God, these personal lies. And they're usually invisible to the person. They're just invisible in the sense that they just feel true. They feel like this is the way the world is, not this is my problem. And you can sometimes hear them on people's lips all the time if you're attuned to it. And they often don't realise how false they are. Satan camouflages the lies, the truth, uh, and hammers them home with confirming experiences. Repeated failures can confirm to someone that they, their belief that they're never going to be successful is true. Well, everyone has stuff to deal with that. And part of growing in Christian community, in Christian maturity, is being ruthlessly determined to shine the truth of the word of God onto your life. And every sermon, every Bible study, every act of personal care is potentially going to be dealing with these sorts of issues and doing battle with them. If someone wants to apply the word of God to their own life, they will find medicine in the word of God to cure them of these ills. The truth shall set you free. So that's the personal level. But there's also the bigger lies, the cultural lies. And that's what I want to mainly speak about uh, the rest of this session and the next one. There are the bigger lies that are embedded in the culture, ungodly views that are in the very part of our language. These cultural lies, their fingers, their claws go into our minds, into our homes. They, uh, they reach us through entertainments that we watch, through the conversations of friends and colleagues through the things that we're exposed to in the education system, they replicate themselves and self-repeat uh, through our structures of society, through the media, they're in political ideologies, they're in structures of parties. They're very pervasive and they're deeply rooted and they're constantly seeking influence. And like personalised, they can be hard to question. And I want to mention some of them today. And it's important to understand that for someone that's afflicted by these, they just believe them to be true. They're presupposed to be true. And I'm going to enter into this topic by sharing some learnings that I've had from speaking about Islam all over the years. I've spoken about Islam so many times to so many groups around the world, and it always creates some kind of cognitive dissonance in people. Their worldviews get shaken up by the things that I say. And the content is quite challenging, because if you shine a spotlight on Islam, it causes certain things that are normal part of Western thinking to be really rocked and challenged. It's hard for people to get their minds around it. And it comes out in the questions. And I really love the question time because um, it's an opportunity to in engage with these, with these issues. We're going to have question time in, in about 12 minutes. So please be thinking about your questions. Um, and what I'm going to do is, uh, is mention one question that I'm sometimes asked. And I'm going to spend quite some time unpacking what lies under that question. Because when people ask questions, they often ask them out of the, the worldview dissonance that they're experiencing. They've listened to something, and something doesn't quite work for them, and so they ask a question because they're itching. They feel they're itching. That whatever you've said to them is causing their mind to itch, and they want help with that. So the questions are quite important, and you have to treat them with respect and, and grace. Um, that some lie might be challenged. So sometimes when I've explained how Muhammad's example projects onto behaviour today, in disturbing ways. For example, Muhammad married a six-year-old girl, and as a result, in Islamic law, uh, young girls are often married off to older men. That was Muhammad's example. Um, 
So after teaching about that and explaining it and looking at the sources and, and giving examples in contemporary life, someone might stand up and say, isn't the issue that Islam hasn't had a reformation yet like Christianity? It's a really interesting and revealing question. It's the tip of an iceberg. But to answer the, that tip, you need to know what the iceberg is and what, what's supporting that question. Why has that question come out? There's a cluster of beliefs about religion and about progress, um, about ideas. And I'm, I'm going to unpick some of those, those, those underlying things and just explain how they contribute to that question. So one of those beliefs that underlies that question is the idea that things are generally moving in a positive direction in the world. This is belief in progress. Um, there's a whole political side of politics, the left-wing side, the progressive side that believes in progress. The difference between left and right in politics is basically a difference about how we see time. The left wing sees history as progress, and the right wing is concerned that change could destroy the good things from the past. In, in France, the left is sometimes called the party of movement, because it's moving forwards, and the right is the party of order. So this is a, basically a difference in how people think about time. The left, they look to a better and more enlightened future, freed from the shackles of the past, and on the right, there are people who want stability and guidance in the, in the chaotic future. Now, people on the left side, they want to be on the right side of history. And if ever you hear a politician speaking about being on the right side of history, they're a progressive. What does that mean? That means that in the future, people will judge us well and think well of us. Why is that important? Because they will be wiser than us and better than us. Who cares what our grandparents thought? They were just idiots. It's our grandchildren that are the people that we should be pleasing and impressing because they'll be more evolved than us. And President Barack Obama and Prime Minister Julia Gillard, they said they want to be on the right side of history. And um, President Obama said about Donald Trump, the future does not belong to strong men. <laughs> the future does not belong to is a, is a common uh, phrase that comes out of this worldview as well. Um, now, the, this view of time as progress has become really dominant in our culture. It's very embedded in the way people think about uh, everything, about religions, about ideology. It's in the New Age movement, the cosmic humanist worldview, which is that people are evolving. You know, we are meant to be all evolving. Um, I was really struck when those debates about marriage a few years ago in Australia, that some pro-change advocates who wanted same-sex marriage introduced, they would characterise people who opposed it as cave dwellers, as prehistoric people who hated change. They were fearful of change and they should just crawl back into their caves and let progress continue. So that's all just driven by this worldview of time as progress. So back to that question, shouldn't we not be too worried about the influence of Bahamut because progress will eventually fix it all. Things will just evolve, you know. Islam will have its reformation and it'll be fine by then because we're all evolving and Christianity has too. But I want to just linger a little bit longer with that question. There's some other beliefs behind that question, not just belief in progress. One belief is that all religions are the same. And if Christianity went through this enlightenment, Islam could as well. What happens in one faith will happen in another. So why are you concerned? Because aren't we all really the same anyway? 
Another view as part of the iceberg under the water is that religions are really constructed by culture. Um, this is the idea that human beings create religion and as human beings are evolving and changing, so their cultures will as well. And that was Professor Sheila Jeffries, the, the lesbian feminist at Melbourne University. She said that Islam, Christianity and Judaism are very similar particularly towards women, because they're all the product of patriarchal culture. They're a product of a certain trend of human nature. There's also another belief that underlies that question, and that is that everything is subject to interpretation anyway. Um, the doctrines and the teachings and the sacred books of religion, they can be reinterpreted to suit new perspectives. Christians used to believe one thing, now they believe another. You know, they used to oppose divorce, sometimes they do now, they support it. And postmodernism has helped this along. Meaning is, according to a postmodern outlook, is just in the eye of the beholder. It's something the reader constructs. The author is dead, as Roland Barthes said. By this view, Islam is not what the Quran says or what Muhammad said 1400 years ago, it's whatever Muslims today say it is. So if you want to know about Islam, just talk to a Muslim, that's all you need to know, what they think, because that's all it is. Interpretations are, are everything. There's no truth, just opinion. And if you pull that in with the idea that we're all evolving, our interpretations will of course get better over time because we're all getting better and progress will make everything right. Humanity will make it all better in the end. As we evolve, our interpretations will evolve, our religions will evolve. So why should we worry about anything to do with Muhammad or underage girls being married off in the Middle East? It'll all sort itself out in the end. What a relief, what a relief. Islam will have its reformation. So these are, these are really big cultural strongholds and the question is arising out of that. So what the person is doing when they ask that question is they're wrestling with these ideas that they've somehow been taken captive by. And there's another problem as well with that question, another issue, and that is ignorance about history. Um, Worldviews, as I said, they act as a filter. They, they push certain things out of the way. They're a device to manage information to a certain purpose. And the truth is about the Christian Reformation, you know, when Martin Luther nailed his theses on the door of the cathedral and a whole section of Europe rejected the authority of the Pope and there was a separation of the Protestant churches. This was not a progressive movement. It wasn't a move towards enlightenment. It actually was regressive in the sense that people speak about today because it went back to the Bible. The purpose of the Reformation was to get rid of all the bad things that had arisen over the centuries by going back to Jesus and the Bible. It was going back to the past, not going forward. And actually for centuries from the Middle Ages into the Reformation, this idea of going back to the past was incredibly prestigious. Everyone knew that things were messed up. Even the Catholics had their Reformation as well. Everyone knew that things weren't as the Bible was teaching us, and people knew they had to go back, that history had gone bad. It's like an apple had gone rotten, and they needed to go back to the, to the tree. They needed to go back to a fresh apple, back to, back to Jesus and the apostles. So, so Francis of Assisi was a reformer in that sense. He, he was wealthy, he was a rich young man. He read when Jesus said to the young ruler, you know, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, he said, I'm gonna do that. And he, he started a movement, it was a revolution, but it was a movement backwards, it wasn't a movement forwards. 
And Luther, he read Paul's teaching on the freedom of a Christian, and he set the German world aflame with this call to break loose from the shackles of papal authority, speaking about freedom, but he wasn't doing it because he wanted the world to be evolving or more enlightened. He was doing it because he wanted to take people back to the gospel. And it's interesting, in that time, people thought it was great to go back to the source, but this whole mindset of reformation that you you restore Christianity by going back to the Bible, it's the complete opposite of how people think about progress today. And so what happens is that when people with a progressive worldview think about the Reformation, they fit it into their, their worldview. So they say that was an enlightenment, that was an evolution in, in the history of Christianity. And that's completely mistaken. And they just can't understand the Reformation because it's contrary to their view of history. And you can find thousands of people in the West who think about the Reformation in those terms. They see it as proof that religions will evolve instead of understanding that it's a call back to truth, biblical truth. It's like a grassroots rewriting of history done by the hands and minds of thousands of people because their worldview prevents them from understanding the past. Um, how do you respond to this? You know, you have these ungodly beliefs that are wrapped up in ignorance and they, they pop out as a question. How, how do you respond? You know, do you take an hour to unpack all those things? Um, how would you respond if someone asks a question like that? You can tell that their worldview has a series of issues that need to be addressed in time. You have to understand firstly the question. You have to know where they're coming from. Where does that come from? Why is that important to them? Now, you can't just reiterate the evidence that you've just provided to them. You silly person, weren't you listening to me? <laughs> That's not going to work. You'll just get the dead men do bleed response, you know. It just doesn't fit them. They're not going to get out of their boat that's leaking just because you're happy in the water, you know. That's not going to make the move. Um, you, one way is to, is to work out some key issues that they're building their question on and, and challenge those. Um, if you're not careful, they'll just, you know, short circuit the process by saying you're a bigot or something like that. They'll just wipe it out. Don't have to listen to him. Thank goodness. What a relief. I didn't like what he was saying. Um, and uh, unfortunately, people will short circuit that, that, that critical moment of opportunity uh, if they sense that you're just hostile or you're not willing to listen or you're not patient enough. And that's a time for grace to apply the truth with, with grace. I just want to talk about one response to that and then we'll have some questions. One technique to deal with that moment when um, a bad worldview kind of raises its ugly head in a, in a question as someone's struggling with things they can't quite integrate is to recognise that what's happening is something called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is um, when the worldview and the, and the evidence are not hanging together. There's a, there's a, there's a tension that's caused. And it's a very uncomfortable uh, feeling for the person when their worldview is beginning to fail or it's not quite working. And it's an opportunity for them to change their worldview if they can get some help. But it also can cause people to become hardened in their worldview and to double down. And that's happening a lot in our culture today. You give people all the evidence and they, get, they just say, oh, you're, an, you're a bigot, and they refuse to listen. Um, and the more intense that response is, the more you can assume that there's some cognitive dissonance that they're, they're not dealing with. So, for example, um, with that question, you know, won't Islam have its reformation? One way that I would respond to that is just increase the cognitive dissonance for them. 
Um, and I can do that by quoting a Muslim. For example, Walid Ali is a Melbourne Muslim and a media figure. He once wrote that he said, anyone familiar with radical and terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and the Taliban knows that they can't be cured by reformation for the very simple fact that they are the reformation. Just like the Christians, they've gone back to the sources and that's what the reformation looks like in Islam. It's people blowing themselves up. So you don't, don't be asking for a reformation in Islam, it's already happened. So what I, what I, if I respond like that to them, that'll increase their confusion and their stress. Uh, they'll, oh, oh, they'll go, oh, you know. And the purpose of doing that at that particular point is not to solve all their issues, it's to, it's to make the pain greater. <laughs> is to challenge them. It's like when you're preaching a sermon and you, your people are under a conviction of sin, you don't say, oh, but that's okay. Don't worry about your feelings of guilt. You've got to say, Jesus saves. You, know, you, you actually need to take them to the point of being able to give up so much in order to find relief from that pain. You don't, you don't downplay it. Um, you could point out, if you, if you try that strategy of increasing the cognitive dissonance, of pointing out that every time in the last 150 years when Muslims have tried to implement a program of going back to the past, of cleansing Islam and bringing the golden age back, it's produced disaster instead of utopias. So there's the you know, revolutionary Iran today, there's Afghanistan under the Taliban, the Islamic State, Boko Haram, uh, Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Every time it's been a disaster. And the problem is that an Islamic reformation will, will just make everything much worse. Um, they were trying to patch things up. They wanted you to say, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe Islam could have a reformation. And you've made it harder for them. You've taken that option away from them. But even then, you need more. You need to give them truth to rebuild things and to put things back, back together. I'm going to stop there, and I'll pick um, up some other strategies to respond to the worldview issues uh, in the next session after lunch. But I think we've got 12 minutes or so uh, for questions. How did you want to do that? So you want to wander around? Yeah. I love questions. <laughs> okay. Uh, outstanding. Um, the, the, the person that asked the question, like I wouldn't have all that behind the scenes knowledge and understanding of what you just shared. Um, did you know that immediately or did you ask more questions to clarify or did you, you're just that good now that you just know what they're actually... <laughs> like, I've, if someone I've, asked I've, me that, I would like, oh my I've Lord. I've heard that question a hundred times and I've talked to those people many times and I know the worldview that it's coming out of and I've read articles saying mm. we need an Islamic reformation. So I've thought about it so much. Yeah. When you hear the similar questions over and over again, you. You, you, you're hearing of people are itching and you kind of become familiar with it. Right. So that for me, it's just, it's been a long process of actually walking okay. with people, listening mm. to them, sitting down, talking face to face. So right. you, you gain some experience and that enables you to be more effective. It's like you're a doctor, you see the symptoms, you say, oh, that's measles because you've seen it before. Mm. And so you need to gain familiarity with those worldview issues. So for people like us, yes, where do we start? Like we don't have that you know, um, experience of seeing many, many measles, many, many symptoms, do we just clarify questions? Because quite often people will ask questions, but my worldview and my filter kicks into what I think they're asking, 
not what they're actually asking. Yes. So we're, 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 we're you know, in this, in, this, in this training, we're giving you some reference points to just be able to get past your filter. And so one of the things I'm going to name is half a dozen bad ideas that are part of our culture. And so your, your, your work really is over these days and weeks ahead is to be listening for these signs of this showing up in people. And you think, oh, I know that. That's the progressive view. Or, oh, yeah, that's the view that if you only really understand someone well enough, they'll turn out to be an angel, you know. And where's that coming from, you know? And so it gives you some skill in recognizing those things. And, you know, one of the problems with living within the bubble of a Christian church is that you, your whole worldview gets so well constructed that that's all you can be familiar with. But to be an effective evangelist, you have to go outside into the marketplace of ideas. So take heart. Yeah, look, similar theme, just trying to tap into your experience in having these conversations in the Australian culture. Can you give us some hope? As in, for me, I'm somewhat daunted in a similar sense. You know, I'm getting the tools and frameworks to engage in these conversations. But even if I perform well, if you like, and feel like I've expressed well, how, you know, even in a quantitative way, you know, maybe out of percentage-wise, perhaps, how well is it received? Do people take hold of truth once they're through their crisis and, and actually make changes and implement uh, new directions in their lives? And well, two things I want to say. Firstly, remember the parable of the sower. Yep. It's actually madness to sow on paths and rocky ground and weedy ground. I mean, bad farmers do that. But, you know, God does that. He, through you, he sows the truth into many different places. And you can't always tell what the place is going to be like. So you just do it in season and out of season and you see where God will take it. And it's very discouraging being an evangelist to see those seeds lost or people that seem to move and then they get overwhelmed. You know? And I think the more effective you are as an evangelist, the more you'll see, have those disappointments as well. Uh, so I, you, know, you need to be encouraged by your pastor in that. Um, but pers persevere. The second thing is, I sense a change in our culture. And the change I sense is that people are realizing they're, they're bound by lies and they want to get out. And so we've had like full-on atheists leave atheism and become incredibly passionate and gifted Christians. Um, one, of, one of the women that's uh, come to faith in the church was a, a well-known children's author. Her, her books have sold six million, more than six million copies. And she's, um, you know, three years or so after becoming a Christian, she's now the head of publishing for the Bible Society, which is the largest Christian media organisation in Australia. But, and she's had, she did the, their Christmas book last year. Um, but she's an amazing person, very, very passionate. And she was an atheist, you know. And actually, I find that those people who've gone through that worldview challenge and have realised that they've been fed a lot of lies are much uh, more passionate about the Jesus and the gospel than, than lifetime Christians who aren't really aware of the challenge that faces them. So I just sense it's, I think it's a great time for the gospel and, and these con con conflicting worldviews that are afflicting people, they, people are sensing there's something wrong. Their cognitive dissonance levels are going up and uh, they know the answers aren't coming. So I'd be encouraging people to say, this is a great time to be having those conversations. Just go out there and see where it leads you. Don't be discouraged if, if people don't um, respond at the right time. You, you can't guarantee people's response. But nevertheless, you, your question might open up a, you know, a bubble in there. It might, might, just, it might be like a, 
a pebble in the mind, in the shoe of their mind. You know, they're walking in these shoes that are not good, and you need to put a pebble there so that it hurts them, and they'll take it off. You know, and that's in a way uh, what, 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 with what these skills can help you do, just to know what question will really, really cause them to think, "Oh no, that can't be right. I have to do something about that." I don't, want, I don't want to be a naturalist, the guy said, you know. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm not happy with that. In the absence of other questions, I'll um, ask a slightly personal one. Yeah. I've had a, a friend I've been interacting with who's an Amhadi Muslim, and he tells me that the version of the Quran that I read, maybe a third of, was the wrong kind, and that they have a more accurate one where they've gone back to a truer reading of the Arabic, they believe. And from what I've heard, it seems to be a bit harsher on the phrases concerning Jesus Christ with his loopholes in the Quran where you can talk a bit more about it. Now he's had his own opportunities, he can read the book of John, whatever. But um, I've been, admittedly I haven't researched properly on this and I'm sorry, but I've been wondering how the Amhadis fit into the general framework and if you've interacted with them, how have, how have you found interacting with them as regards to Jesus Christ? Is that Amhadis? Right? Yeah, that's it. I'm mispronouncing it. Yeah, um, well, they, they have some... Um non-standard views about Islam and they're regarded as heretics in many countries. They've been massacred in places like Indonesia and Pakistan and so on and they, they're a movement I think that arose in the 19th century. Um, they believe I think that Jesus went to um, went to India or something you know that he they have certain unusual beliefs. They tend to be more peaceful than other Muslims. They have a peaceful interpretation of jihad and there's, a, there's an English translation of the Quran that, that has a, a, by one of their leaders that has their teachings. So they tend to pop up uh, and present a, Christ, uh, a, um, a more peaceful face of Islam when they can. I don't believe it's true what he said to you, that they have a different Quran, but they have a different interpretation or translation. I might be wrong. And it's certainly it's not true that their Quran is somehow purer. You know, I, I did a second PhD on the origins of the Quran and you know, uh, it's not the case that the, the, they have no credibility to say they have the right Quran. Um, but they are more peaceful and they, they, want to step, they want to distinguish themselves from the more radical Muslims. And they persecuted themselves, you know, very intensely. Um, I think they have a belief about some of their key leaders that they've been divinely inspired as well, uh, which, is, which, which is interesting. As far as I understand, their stronghold is in, like, India and Pakistan, that many of them come from there. Um, I, with, with people like that, I'd just be curious and say, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? You know, um, And then that gives you an opportunity to say, you know, do you have a personal relationship with God? Um, it's tricky, though. I mean, one of the challenges with Islam is that Muslims have an inbuilt apologetic against Christianity in Islam. So every Muslim is trained to evangelize Christians. Just from the, it's just the basics. But Christians have no knowledge about how to respond to the Islamic questions. So there are some good resources out there to equip yourself so you know what questions to ask so that you can, you know, what, what challenges to put in their way. And, um, but, yeah, just take time to understand where he's coming from as well. Mm. Yes, Caleb. <laughs> 
If um, if you could maybe put the the Aussie mentality down to one one thing, like what what do you think your average kind of thong wearing, barbecuing, <laughs> middle class Aussie is 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 thinking? Like what's their world view? Because I think obviously we have Christian underpinnings in our nation, and that often manifests. But then you know a lot of Aussies, it's it's becoming very secular. But what's your average Aussie kind of? How are they seeing the world and life and meaning, in your opinion? Everyone's basically decent and fair if you give them a fair shake. Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a good guy, and you are too. I assume you are, you know, and let's have a beer together. And look, we might have some differences, but I'm sure if we talk to each other, we'd understand it and we'd get on. And just by, you know, don't be too serious about anything. Don't be an extremist, you know. Just, just lay back a little bit and... Uh, you know, just take it easy and we'll be, we'll be friends. Just don't, don't, you know, don't lay anything too hard on me and I won't on you and uh, we'll just get on together real fine. <laughs> don't tell me that human beings are sinners. That's, that's not acceptable. Yeah. It's, it's not true. It's fundamentally at war with the Bible. And how many people that you know, they'll say, oh, I'm a good person. Yeah. It's, it's like they've, our culture's accepted the principle of grace. You should extend grace to people. But we've abandoned the truth of the fallenness of human nature. We, we've taken, we cherry-picked Christianity. But it's not sustainable. Because sometime, somewhere along the road, that neighbour is not going to be so friendly to me. He's going to kill me. You know, he's going to steal from me. He's going to take from me something, you know. And that's going to challenge my worldview. Um, I was really, just to finish on a positive, I was just really moved by the story of the Maronite Christians whose three children were killed by the guy who'd had too much to drink. And, and they, they, one of the first things their parents said is they forgave him. Um, and the, the, the statements at the funeral were just so moving. And I thought, that's the gospel in action. These people have been listening to the gospel for centuries through their ancestors and they've absorbed it. And it's affected the way they think. And that's so different from you know, how, um, how, how secular people think in our society, so.